continuing our Advent series in the book of Malachi, and uh, it's titled Faithfully Waiting. And this was uh, the book that was written, the final book of the Old Testament, is God was uh, explaining to his people how to faithfully wait for Christ to come the first time, and it's going to help us understand how to faithfully wait uh, for Christ to come the second time. And so if you're looking for the book of Malachi, just find the book of Matthew and go left. It's the, uh, it's the very last book of the Old Testament. Uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 6 through Malachi chapter 2, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father... Where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun, and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." And now, this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from their sin. For the lips of a priest who ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. 
But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality and matters of the law. This is the word of the Lord. So your typical Advent reading Right? So like I said, we're, we're following um, the Advent themes, and last week we looked at hope, and this week we're going to look at peace. And peace is something that every human being desires, uh, yet to have peace we all know is very difficult, especially when there has been something introduced into a relationship that takes away from peace. We can't help but think to ourselves, well, if they would only admit what they did, or, or it's just not right, you know, you know that, that's, that's unjust, and we feel this anger and this, this sense that, that things need to be set right if there's ever going to truly be peace. And that's because true peace is more than just lack of conflict. If, if two people agree just not to fight each other, or if, or if two countries sign a peace treaty, simply because they're tired of the price of constant fighting. That's not really peace, because the reason for the conflict is still there. Real hurts, real trauma, real unforgiveness, all still there. So true peace, true peace can only happen when a relationship is restored. True peace is when both parties desire and work toward the good of the other. True peace is not just the lack of conflict. True peace is harmony and joy. And our passage this morning is about peace with God. And I will admit, it's not immediately transparent Because on the surface, it seems like God is just telling the people how bad their sacrifices are and how bad their priests are and how they need to do better. God is clearly angry with the people in our passage. Uh, In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Later in chapter 2, he tells the priests, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. That's pretty bad. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. God did not enter into a relationship with Israel so that he could be angry with them, rebuke them, and smear poop on their faces. No, God entered into a relationship with his people so that they could know him and so that they could have life and peace. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. This is God's desire for his people. God has revealed himself so that his people could experience life and peace. And the question before us this morning, then, is how on earth does this passage teach God's people how to have life and peace? 
Because it kind of seems like God's just mad about bad sacrifices and he's mad at bad priests for not doing anything about it. Okay, so in order for me to explain this, I'm going to have to explain something else first. And as I explain this other thing, it's probably going to feel like drinking out of a fire hydrant for a little bit, okay? So just bear with me because it's all going to be worth it, okay? So, so strap on your seatbelts and let's go, okay? So in order to understand what's happening in this passage, we have to understand the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Or another way to put it, we have to understand the difference between law and gospel, okay? Uh, and I'm going to say the word covenant about 50 times this morning. And so just briefly, so we are all on the same page, the, the most base level understanding of what a covenant is, is it's simply an agreement between two parties, okay? Uh, and the two parties at play here are either is God and us, okay? So a covenant is an agreement between two parties. So the covenant of works in its most simple form says this, do this, right? Do the works and you will live. Obey the commands and you will receive the blessings. Don't obey the commands and you will receive the curses. The covenant of grace or the gospel says this, Christ has done this, therefore now you can live. And so if you're looking at the gospel from before the time Christ came, you're looking at something that says Christ will do this so that you can live. And if you're looking at it from before or for after Christ came where we're at, it's Christ has done this so that you can live, okay? So we have law, we have gospel, we have the covenant of works, we have the covenant of grace. And actually the Bible can be very confusing if we do not understand this distinction, okay? So Adam was in the Garden of Eden under the covenant of works. He was under the law. He was not under the gospel. His relationship with God was not based on grace because Adam was sinless. He didn't need grace. He was able to perfectly and perpetually obey all the commands of God. All he had to do was just not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he would have lived perfectly in God's presence, walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day, and all would have been perfect. He could do this and live. Except he didn't. He sinned and he fell. But immediately after his sin, immediately after the fall, God comes to him and he introduces the covenant of grace. God kills an animal, showing Adam that someone would have to die because of his sin. And then he takes the skin of that animal and he covers Adam with it, covering over his guilt and his shame. And then he promises Adam and Eve that one day a woman would have a child and that child is going to crush the head of the serpent that deceived them, okay? And Adam and Eve then lived, not because they could keep the covenant of works any longer, but simply because they believed in this promise that they received from God, okay? Are you with me? Okay. Then later... With Abraham, God began to fill out this covenant of grace. Abraham was given the gospel when God promised him unconditionally that through him all nations were going to be blessed on the earth. And all Abraham had to do was believe this promise and receive this promise. 
with trust, with faith, knowing that it was unconditional, okay? And now every human being is born still under the covenant of works. We're all required to give God a perfect and perpetual obedience from the moment we're born. But because we're sinners, the only way that we can ever actually relate to God is under the covenant of grace. And through the covenant of grace, we believe in God's promises to save anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. So you believe the gospel before Jesus came by putting your trust in the child that would come, and we put our trust in the child who has come, right? Okay. Then, uh, after God rescued the children of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt, he took them into the desert, and he made another covenant with them uh, under Moses. And the purpose of this covenant under Moses was to show them how to live as God's people, okay? So God had rescued them out of slavery because of his promises to Abraham, and now he's building them into a nation together, and he's giving them this covenant through Moses, and he wants to show them, this is how my people live. This is how you live in such a way that represents me and honors me and shows the rest of the watching world that you are my children and that you understand who I am and how to live in light of my holiness, and how to live in light of the fact that they were God's people, okay? Now, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of Moses was not a covenant of grace. The covenant of Moses was not a covenant of grace. It was a covenant of works. Uh, Theologians put it this way. They say it's a republication of the covenant of works. So with Adam in the garden, right, He was told, do this and you will live. And now under Moses, the people are told, do this and you will live. Listen to how God summarizes the covenant with Moses through the prophet Jeremiah. God says, and listen to all the do this and live language, okay? God says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, cursed is the one who does not obey the terms of this covenant. The terms I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, uh, out of the iron smelting furnace, I said, obey me and do everything I command you and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. So the covenant with Moses is a covenant of law. Under Moses, in order to remain God's people and to remain in the land, they had to obey everything that God commanded them, right? Just like Adam had to obey everything God commanded him in the garden. And if they didn't, they would be cursed, Which is why God says, cursed is everyone who does not obey the commands of this law. Okay? This is because the covenant of Moses is a law covenant. It's a covenant of works. It's conditional. It's dependent on perfect obedience. This is what God says in Leviticus 18. He says, you must obey my laws. Be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. Do this and live, okay? So this is why the people of Israel are ultimately conquered and sent out of the promised land. Because they didn't do it. They received the covenant curses. By the time that they are um, conquered by the Babylonians, uh, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, and they're brought to Babylon. That is all stuff that God said explicitly in probably Deuteronomy would happen to them if they do not obey all of the laws of Moses, okay? Yet, 
At the same time, God is so patient and gracious to them. They were sinning throughout the time in the wilderness. They were sinning as God was bringing them into the promised land. They sinned the entire time they were in the promised land. And so if you look at the the covenant of Moses, they should have never been brought into the promised land in the first place under the covenant of Moses. And once they got in there, they should have been kicked out right away according to the strict understanding of the laws of Moses, okay? But God is patient with them. He's kind. He's forgiving. Why? Well, toward the end of the book of Leviticus, which was written by Moses, before they uh, ever entered the promised land, God predicted that the people were going to break the covenant with Moses and that he was going to have to pour out the covenant curses on them. He says this, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sins, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Notice, it's because of the covenant of grace It's because of the covenant of promise given to Abraham. That's why God is so gracious to them. That is why he eventually brings them back into the land. This is how the Apostle Paul explains it in the book of Galatians. Are you still with me, by the way? This is like fire hydrant status, right? Okay. So now we're going to jump to Galatians. This is the way the Apostle Paul explains it. He says this, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Right? So, so, so Paul is skipping over the covenant with Moses and pointing Christians back to the covenant with Abraham. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Right? Those who rely on the fact that Christ has done so they can live are blessed. But those who are trying to do so they can live are cursed. So you see the law, you see the gospel. You see the covenant of works, you see the covenant of grace. Okay? Paul goes on. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Certainly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Do you see it? The righteous live by faith. They see everything that Christ has done for them. They they believe that he has died for them. They trust in that, and that's what causes them to live. It's the gospel. It's the covenant of grace. Christ has done this for you. Now live. And the other is not the gospel, right? It's the law. It's the covenant of works. It says, do this and you will live, okay? So the person who does these things will live by them, but the person who believes the gospel will live by that. Now, the reason the person who tries to rely on works of the law is cursed is because no one can keep the law, right? The purpose of the law was not so that we can be saved through it. 
The purpose of the law is to show us how holy God is, how sinful we are, and to cause us to cry out for the mercy and the grace that he offers us in the gospel. Are you still with me? Okay. Later in Galatians, Paul says this. So the law was our guardian, and that word guardian uh, could be translated teacher. Um, It's the word pedagogos. I think that's how you say it in Greek, where we get our English word pedagogy. So, So the law was our teacher, until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So what does the law teach us? Well, the law teaches us that God is holy, that he demands and deserves perfect, perpetual obedience, and that we can't do it. We're incapable of living by it. And if we try to live by it, we put ourselves under the curses of it because of our failure. The purpose of the law is to teach us to trust God's promises instead of ourselves. The purpose of the covenant of works is to drive us to the covenant of grace. The purpose of the law is to, is to make us love the gospel, okay? And when we trust in God's mercy and God's promises in the gospel, all of a sudden, no longer is the law a cruel taskmaster showing us God's holiness and our weakness and making us afraid, but it becomes our delight, It shows us how we can live in order to please God out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. So, we're going to get to our passage eventually, trust me. When we read scripture, when we read the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, is this law or is this gospel? Is this a command meant to drive me to repentance and faith back to the gospel and what Christ has done for me? Is this a command that I can, because of the gospel now, learn to obey out of gratitude for what Christ has done for me? Or is it just the straight gospel? (laughs) Is Is it Christ being shown to me in all of his glory and beauty and what he's done for me? Because when we read the scriptures and and we see the high demands of the law, our temptation is to think, oh no, oh no, I can never do that. How could I ever do that? Right? And, and instead of looking to Christ and what he has done, we look at to ourselves and what we, what we should do. But, but if we read the scriptures with this, this understanding of the law and the gospel in place, we see the purpose of the law. And when, when we read God's high demands of the law, we think, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Um which finally gets us back to our text for this morning. The reason this passage sounds so harsh, the reason this passage is difficult to read and it sounds like God is angry, the reason it sounds like God is telling the people to be good or else is because this passage is primarily law. God is using the law to remind the people of his holiness and their sin, not so that they will try to keep the demands of the law laid out in this passage to earn their peace with God, but as a teacher to drive them back to the promises of Abraham and God's mercy and God's grace. Let me show you. Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 1, God says, when you offer blind animals animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Haven't I not said explicitly in my law that you ought not to offer me blind animals for sacrifices? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. 
Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You see, what was happening was the people were sinning. They knew that they weren't keeping the law of Moses because (laughs) it doesn't take much to, to realize you can't do that. And then what they were doing is they're bringing these blind and lame animals as sacrifices, right? As a way of sort of just paying off God. Instead of using the sacrificial system as a way of displaying godly sorrow over their sin and expressing gratitude to God for his grace and his willingness to forgive, they were coming to worship at the temple and making sacrifices so that God would forgive them. So they had turned the covenant of grace into a covenant of works, right? They were coming with these sacrifices thinking that, hey, I know I've sinned big this week, but hey, I'll bring this goat down and and I'll sacrifice it to God and poof, everything's all good. They were treating it as a religious transaction as if God's now required to forgive them just because they performed the right ritual. As if they could earn God's favor, not by keeping the whole law, but by keeping the sacrificial part of the law that allowed them to live however they wanted and then to be forgiven of their sin through this ritual. And actually, Christians do this too, right? Christians will go out and they'll sin. Big, unrestrained, unrepentantly. With things that God has clearly said, this is not who you are anymore. And then they'll come back to church on Sunday morning and, and then we'll offer our, you know, pleas of forgiveness as a blind sacrifice, thinking that somehow just because we came to church on Sunday and asked God to forgive us, that now he's required to. This is cheap grace, right? This is acting like, like sin is no big deal. It's the same mistake when people say things like, of course God forgives me, that's his job which is exactly what God accuses the people of Israel of doing here. In verse 9, says this, Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such sacrifices from your hands, will he accept you? Right, so they're bringing these diseased animals, expecting God to be gracious to them, just because they came to worship and offered the sacrifice. They think they can buy off God by performing this ritual, and he'll be gracious to them. But God will not accept this offering. Instead, he says in verse 11, Oh, that one of you would shut the doors of the temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. God's saying, it's better that you don't even come to worship me. Don't even come. If all you're doing is coming here to feel a little bit better about the sins you're planning to give yourselves to next week, Don't even come. Later, God says in verse 14, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is all language of law. It's it's the demand for a perfect sacrifice. Curses for the failure to make a perfect sacrifice. You see, the fact that they're offering blind and diseased animals reveals that they don't get the purpose of the sacrifices. They were supposed, they were not supposed to be making sacrifices to get God to forgive them because a right sacrifice under the Mosaic law 
was supposed to be an expression of worship and gratitude because of God's promises to be their God that he made to them under the covenant of grace with Abraham. The sacrificial system built into the law of Moses is an echo. It's it's an arrow pointing them back to the real basis of forgiveness, which is God's promise. And yet they were treating the sacrifice itself as the basis for forgiveness. And the sacrificial system was a reminder that sin is costly, but that God and his grace will accept a substitute in our place. And someone who truly understands the magnitude of God's holiness and the depth of his or her sin would not take it lightly that God would forgive them. For someone who truly understands the depth of God's mercy and grace toward them in spite of their sin to find an acceptable sacrifice. I mean, think about it. If we really, if these people here really understood the holiness of God and that that he would, and that he would forgive them simply because he promised that he would. And if they understood what a gift that was, And how amazing that is. (laughs) To go pluck out a perfect lamb would be like whatever. It would be like the least that you could do for all that God had done for them. And yet they thought it was a burden. Look at verse 13. God says, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff at the altar contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. The people thought it was a burden when they should have thought that it was the least they could do. Because true repentance hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Right? And the reason they didn't understand these sacrifices is because they didn't know God's word. Look at verses 6 and 7. God says, It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? See, the priests, they're the ones who are supposed to know and teach the scriptures, and they didn't even know that they were defiling God's altar. But ignorance is no excuse, right? The people who were supposed to teach God's people all these things didn't even know the truth themselves. They didn't know that they're they're showing contempt for God by using the sacrificial system this way, as if God can be bought off with blind and deceased animals that they didn't even want. Later in chapter 2, God says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. See, people need their religious leaders to know God's law, to know God's word so that they can teach them God's law and God's word. We need to know about God's law and what he requires of us so that we can appreciate his grace and what Christ has done for us and so that we can know how to live a life that pleases him, not to earn his favor, but because we already have it in Christ. Why? Because it's actually the fact that we already have peace with God that produces holiness. So in this passage, God is coming to the people Right after he just got done reminding them of the gospel, remember last week it was all about, I love you. I've chosen you. And then he launches into this law diatribe. 
trying to point them back to the fact that he loves them and has chosen them. So here's the question. Imagine you're, you're Malachi's audience and, and you get done hearing him say all this, okay? What if all of a sudden you realize, yeah, God's mad at me for not sacrificing good sacrifices, okay? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to my flock and my herd and I'm going to get the best sacrifice and I'm going to come down and I'm going to sacrifice that. Would that make it all okay? Is that what God's really after here? No. It's not the fact of these diseased sacrifices that God is upset with them about. God is not looking for perfect performance of religious rituals so that he can brag about being the God whose people give him really good sacrifices. Listen to what David says in Psalm 51. He says, You, Lord, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. You see, these people, right, these diseased sacrifices were evidence that they thought they could live however they want and that God would just be gracious to them simply because they went to the temple and worshiped and gave a sacrifice. But God wants our hearts, Emmanuel Church. He wants our heart. He wants us to see that he is better than life. He wants us to taste and see that he is good and that he has always loved us. So here's the question. How do we get to a place where we really do have a broken spirit and a contrite heart? How do we get to a place where we are actually willing to bring God the best sacrifice we have for worship? Not as a way of trying to pay him off, but truly out of gratitude for what he has freely given to us. How do we get to a place where we're truly broken over our sin and don't treat God's forgiveness as something cheap that we can ask for as a formula to avoid punishment anytime we sin as if he's obligated to forgive us just because we asked? This is why we have to know the difference between law and gospel. This is why we have to know the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The law says, do this and live. And the purpose of the law is to make us feel the weight of what God requires of us. The purpose of the law is to make us squirm or to tremble before his word, as Isaiah says. And to make us realize that God demands and deserves perfect obedience and that we can't do it. And then, in this passage, God is telling the people of Israel, bring me a perfect sacrifice and you will live. He's telling the priests, teach my people who I really am. Be perfect priests. Listen to what he says about the ideal priest. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. This is who the priests were supposed to be. And the reason this passage seems like God is angry and demanding is because this passage is cranking up the law. It's cranking up the covenant of works. And the purpose of the law is not so that we will think that we can do it and live. The purpose of the law is to crush us under its weight and then drive us to the gospel. We're supposed to see that God expects to be and deserves to be worshipped with pure motives and a perfect sacrifice or not at all. And we're supposed to cry out, I can't do it. I can't. And the religious leaders are supposed to see that they must teach God's law without anything false on their lips and walk with God in uprightness and peace so that God's people will turn from their sin. The priests are supposed to feel the weight of their responsibility and help the people turn from their sin. And honestly, they should cry out, I can't do it. 
I can't do it. I can study all day and all night, and all I'm ever going to see is how much I still don't know. And, and when I wrote that, that came out of my heart, you guys. I can study all day and all night, and I'm overwhelmed with how much I still don't know. So how can I ever teach without anything false on my lips? How can I ever make someone else turn from their sin? Because it's the weight of the law that breaks our spirit, gives us a contrite heart. The law is the thing that brings us to a place where we come to God, shattered by our sinfulness, fully aware of his demand and expectation that we obey him perfectly, and then we bring him a perfect sacrifice. Because the purpose of the law is to drive us to the gospel. So when I come up here to preach, I preach under the gospel. Because I can't even write a perfect sermon. I think I tried this week. I ended up, I ended up writing it on my day off yesterday, which I shouldn't because that's, that's, not my, I'm, that's supposed to be my Sabbath, right? Because I'm a legalist at heart, and I feel like I have to have the perfect sermon, right? I wasn't content with what I had written on Friday, and I spent more time, took away from my family, Right? And we just can't do that, guys. We have to believe the gospel, that he loves us just because he does. The purpose of the law is to drive us to the gospel and to what Jesus has done, that Jesus is the perfect priest who gives true instruction and that nothing false was ever on his lips. He's the only priest who walked in peace and uprightness with God and turned his people from their sins. Jesus is the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that God is demanding in this passage that these people cannot give. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never cover our sin, but Jesus, Jesus, the perfectly sinless human, died to take away the sin of anyone who will simply trust in him. And Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works in our place. He perfectly, this is why we have to know the covenant of works, right? Because Jesus did it. He fulfilled the covenant of works. He perfectly obeyed the law of Moses. And then he suffered the curses of the law of Moses on behalf of his people. And in so doing, he fulfills all the requirements of the law, both the obedience the law of Moses required of anyone who was going to live by it and the curses the law required for anyone who failed to live by it. And we now are just swept up into the covenant of grace by faith in Jesus who fulfilled the covenant of works in our place. And we need the law so that our spirits are broken and our hearts are made contrite and so that we see the wonder and the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Right? Unless we hear the law's voice, then what Christ has done for us will be meaningless, right? And then when we read Romans 5.1, we are amazed when Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the temptation for every Christian is to believe I have to be good in order to be, have peace with God. You are going to leave here today and you are going to sin. 
and you were going to automatically think to yourself, I need to not do that, which is true. But guess what? The fact that you did that does not cost you your peace with God. It, it cannot. We can always turn to him. Remember how I began today talking about how hard it is to have peace because there's trauma and, and, and built-in deep resentments. That's all wiped away by the cross. It's all wiped away. And we can always come to Jesus. That's what God wants them to see here, that they need a perfect sacrifice, that they need a perfect priest, and that Jesus is that perfect priest. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, that they cannot fulfill even the loud demands of God in this passage. And when we have peace with God as a free gift through Christ, and when we are united to him by faith, we are made into new creations, willing now to praise him with our whole lives. And when we understand the difference between the law and the gospel, and we read a passage like this, instead of God seeming angry and demanding and us being afraid or confused, all of a sudden it causes us to marvel that Christ is the true peace and the true and perfect sacrifice. And it causes us to live in grateful obedience. And now as Christians, right, our whole lives are to be a living sacrifice. This is what Paul says in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, which we have to know the law to understand that, now offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, not as a way of earning anything, but simply because you are a new creation in Christ, and this is what you are. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we confess that, that we, like the people in this passage, want to find out which part of the law we can just obey so that you'll be happy with us and, and we can still keep our pet sins. And that's just not possible, God. There is no part of the law that we can obey there is no sin that uh, Jesus didn't need to die for. So I pray, Father, that if there's someone here this morning who just needs to be encouraged by the fact that you love them simply because of what you've done for them in Christ, that that's all they will have heard this morning. And yet, Father, at the same time, I pray, if there's someone here who is in love with a sin and thinks that they don't have to give it up because... Jesus died for it anyway. Oh, that they would hear the law's voice. That they would be crushed under the weight of the law. And they would run to Jesus for full forgiveness and full transformation. That they would walk into the light of your grace and confess that sin to a brother or a sister. And that you, God, would do an amazing work in their life and show them that that's not who they are anymore. They are not someone enslaved to sin. They are free in Christ. And that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. And I pray, God, that you would teach all of us uh, by your word and your spirit everything that Jesus needs us to know so that we can live lives holy and obedient to you, faithful and ordinary, so that others may come to know the same grace. In Jesus' name we pray.